Okay, welcome everybody to First Impressions, the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters who don't understand her and think she's a romance in bonnets. I'm Kristen, and I am joined today by my dear friend Maggie. Hi, everyone. And this is episode 12 of the podcast, and we are planning to talk today about the recent movie that has come out, in, at least in the U.S. that has come out, it's been out for a while now. It's Love and Friendship, directed by Whit Stillman, and it is an adaptation of Lady Susan. If you heard our last episode, um, we discussed the text of Lady Susan. So if you're not familiar with uh, Lady Susan, it's one of her more minor works. You might want to check out that episode. But today we can talk about the movie again. Well, first, we should talk about why we're very excited to be recording this podcast. This is an amazing opportunity for us to be together in person. We are in person. (laughs) And Bay is here, too. The old gang is back Back together. together. That's right. Just like day one. So if you all remember, Kristen actually very recently moved across country to Boise, Idaho, and we'd been recording the past few episodes using Google Hangouts. Uh, And with the magic of technology, we were still able to do the podcast, but just very luckily and with a lot of kismet, (laughs) Kristen and I were able to be together back in the D.C. area to record this episode for you all. We're back. And I'm super excited because, um, you know, this is going to be a really fun, I think, and high energy podcast, too, because Maggie and I have differing opinions. We do. It's Clash of the Titans. So now that we're in person, we might actually get into a fist fight or something. Thunderdome. Fisticuffs involved. (laughs) But anyway, so before we get to talking about the movie, I'm going to segue into it by telling a story that I have been sitting on since May... It is an amazing story. It was one of the best nights of my life. One of the most memorable nights of my life. I have not heard this story, so I'm very excited. Maybe best nights of my life is a little far. Okay. What about your your wedding night with Kevin? Well, you know, of course that, you know, this breaks the, (laughs) let's say this breaks the top 30. Okay. Top my life. Okay. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I'm no longer as excited to hear the story. So this story has a couple of like false endings where you think it might be done, but then it's not quite done. There's a code of the king. So, okay. I'm ready. Just so you know, just so you know. Okay. So what happened was my brother-in-law is huge into films and he was on an email list about a film festival and he forwards an email to me and it says, win a free ticket to an advanced screening of love and friendship. This is way before it came out. And so I immediately entered the contest. I heard back. I won the ticket. <gasps> I know. And I, oh my I, God. I metroed all the way into the city, which I will do for no person that I love less than well, Maggie or Jane Austen. I mean, you could actually catch on fire <laughs> these days in the D.C. <laughs> metro. Right. So Yeah. So I took my life in my hands. I went into the city to the East Street uh, Cinema in D.C. And um, there was a showing. And there was going to be a Q&A after the movie with the director, Whit Stillman, but I don't know if I really cared about that. I mean, I'm not a big Whit Stillman fan, so I thought, oh, I'll just sneak out after the, the movie. So I saw the movie. I loved it, as we'll discuss today. And the movie was over, and like half the theater got up and left before the Q&A. Oh, no. And even though I really had to pee, I felt so bad for Whit. I was going to say, you stayed. You know, I know you stayed. <laughs> I, I, I felt so bad for Whit Stillman. you're so sweet. And I was like, I'll see what he has to say. Because I didn't really know how much I res- you know, respected him as a... Uh, you know, I saw Metropolitan, and I wasn't that impressed. Anyway... So wow! Starts, I hope he's not listening to this podcast. I know I was wrong. Let me just say that if, if don't turn it off, wit, if you're listening, because I'm about to tell you how wrong I was about you. So first of all, love, love and French was excellent. But he gets up, he starts doing the Q and A. He says a lot of really interesting things, and then the last question tonight was somebody asked him, "What uh, is your favorite Austin novel hmm. besides Pride and Prejudice?" <gasps> And he was like, whoa. He was like, that's that's kind of interesting. So then he's like, let's take a poll, right? So he goes to the entire theater. He's like, okay, whose favorite is Persuasion? I know it's going to happen. And all these women were like, woo! Waving their hands around like they were at a rock concert. Really? They were like, woo! Persuasion! And I, with Silman and I were both like, <laughs> oh, these basic bitches. <laughs> 
I could not believe that they wooed. And that's the worst kind of persuasion fan, by the way. So anyway. Oh, if we you are would, throwing down already. I know Austin fans are the bitchiest, and Whit Stillman is the bitchiest of them all. It's great. So anyway, then he said Mansfield Park. And I, I knew <laughs> I was going to be the only one in the theater. So I went, Like a total fool, full in a theater full of people, all of whom were silent and immediately turned around. I was like in the back row. They all turned around to look at who this crazy fool was. And um, I was I was trolling them. I was I was making fun of the persuasion people. Anyway, Whit someone was up at the front and he responded to my wooing by like scratching his forehead and he, he said, Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. <gasps> Whoa, validation. And I said from the back of the theater, I said, I know I'm right. <laughs> because I don't need the likes of Whit Stillman yeah. to tell me what the best Austin novel Very is. true. So that was Did amazing. he invite you up on stage then to join in the discussion? No, no. Uh, I mean, I he was, was too worried so- you'd make him look bad because you know everything. <laughs> Well, he said, you know, early before he took that poll, he goes, okay, where are my Janeites? And a lot of people, like, raise their hands. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, I hope you didn't spoil it for everybody else. Because he knows Jane Austen fans are so bitchy and so critical. Yeah. And so have so many infights amongst themselves. And I just want to take a moment to tell you I respect you and love you all. I'm sorry if you like persuasion enough to woo at it. And the other thing, you know, he said some other interesting things, too. He was talking about how the critics love Emma because it's, you know, because they're a complicated bunch and it's the complicated story and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, he would prefer, you know, a protagonist like Lady Susan. And so, um, anywho. That is an amazing story, Kristen. You are so awesome. (laughs) Oh my god! I wish I had been there with you. It would have been so fun. I could just snuck in in your purse. You did it. You <laughs> roll me in in a rolly bag, and I could like unzip it and climb out, and no one would know. I got to tell you, It'd be ladies, so fun. this film festival because it was a known artsy fartsy director. There were so many hipster dudes in the oh, audience. Really? Looking erudite, and I was like, if I was not already married, I could spill my popcorn on one of these guys, and it would be the perfect to meet. Drop your handkerchief. Because <laughs> <laughs> you they, carry a handkerchief. Right yeah, now. well, naturally, because they were willing to, you know, come to an Austin. But Kristen, they wouldn't be able to bend down to help you clean up the popcorn because their jeans are so skinny. And tight. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to like be able to bend down to jeans too tight. <laughs> yeah, that is really cool. Well, thank you. I thought it was pretty fun. I um, I also tweeted to Whitstelman that he should do an adaptation of Mansfield Park. Mm, that would be great. And I also said that the cast the cast he has is perfect for an adaptation of Mansfield Park. Um, so first of all, though, we should just do really fast elevator speech impressions of the movie. Right? Okay, sure. So tell tell us what you thought in a nutshell, Margaret. I, I thought it was a very well-made film, very well-acted film. I loved the soundtrack. Mm. I just did not really like it that much. I feel like this is going to be a minority opinion. Um, and we'll talk about this later, but I feel like if I hadn't read the book, I would have enjoyed it more. But because I did love the book so much, and I just want to preface this by saying that a lot of people are unable to separate um, a book from a film adaptation. Like some people just can't handle the Harry Potter movies because they're not the books. They didn't include everything. And I'm not that type of person. Um, there are two different t- storytelling formats, completely different mediums. It's basically its own story. So this is not a function of, well, the book was just so much better. Um, I just thought that the movie was, it just wasn't for me. I did not really enjoy it. You didn't feel it was much. a faithful adaptation. It's not even that. Um, I, thought a lot of parts of it were very... From a simple storytelling perspective, I thought a lot of parts of it were clumsy and confusing, and the characters were not particularly complex. Uh, those are my main issues that I, I had. D- I don't disagree with you there, and I th- for in a lot of those things. And I completely agree, actually, that maybe about 75% of the way through the movie, it starts to really slow and has some pacing issues and some strange decisions were made. Yes, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yes, but for my angle of attack, I guess I will just say that for me, and I was lucky enough not to be super wedded to the source material either because it's just a fun, fun, cute story, more, more so than Austin's other works. I thought the tone of the adaptation 
was pretty well matched with the tone of the book. Um, I thought that the dialogue was clever. I will also say it was very hard to understand because the, the patter and the pace of the dialogue they were delivering was really fast, but I was able to understand a good bit of it. And I thought that the humor was, for the most part, and I was scared. I will say, watching the trailer, I thought, this is not going to be good. The humor is too broad. There's a scene where Sir James Martin like doesn't know what peas are. Yeah, He's like, what are these jolly green balls? I'm like, come on, Austin would never write that broad. I mean, the people she writes about are normal people who know about peas. Here's the thing. He was actually my favorite part. Oh, yeah. He was my favorite thing in the movie. He's everybody's favorite part. He would be an amazing Mr. Rushworth, right? Mm -hmm. But the rest of the humor was so so funny and so, so good. And Kevin went with me, of course. He's a sweetheart. (laughs) And afterwards he said, I laughed just as much at Love and Friendship as I have laughed at some comedies that I've gone to see specifically because they're just goofy like Mm -hmm. the comedy movies. And I thought that was... Like the latest Judd Apatow. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes. So with regard to the performances, I guess, first of all, I I think that Kate Beckinsale did a good job. I think she reframed my understanding of who Lady Susan was and how she sounded and how she looked. And I was willing to accept her as the Lady Susan of that story. I don't know. That's really interesting that you said that it reframed how you thought of her. Because I just thought that the Lady Susan, as written for the film was much less of an interesting character. Really? Was she less of a spider? Yes. To me, she lacked the... So I talked a lot in the last podcast how I normally don't like epistolary novels, but I thought it really worked for Lady Susan because it showed us the different faces her character presents. And there was still some of that, but she came off as much more sincere. And maybe it's just because Kate Beckinsale is such a great actress, she made Lady Susan Mm. such a great actress. Mm -hmm. But it didn't read that way to me. To me, it read that she's just a nicer person than the Lady Susan from the novel. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I just really enjoy... The yeah. um, the moral ambiguity and the uh, two triple facedness of Lady Susan in the book. So when her Lady Susan was, I guess, a, a nicer Lady Susan, if you want to say that, it's just not as interesting to me. You know, I, I think you're right, and I think the conversation that she has with Frederica, first of all, where in the in the book you kind of get the opinion that she's real mean. Yes, but, in but the, she's it, very in the movie. Actually, she's just like very just chill. And the other huge misstep that I think he made, the director, the director with Stillman, was there's a, a pivotal point towards the end of the book slash movie where Lady Susan and Reginald go to London, mm-hmm. and he figures out that she's been seeing man wearing, right? And he confronts her. Remember those letters yes. mm-hmm. where he's like, "Why would you write to me again?" Well, that happens in person, and she's the one who dumps him. Yes. In the movie, mm-hmm. and that's not not in that that doesn't happen in the book. In the book, she tries to hold on to Reginald, and he's finally figured out who who she is, and she, he leaves. And that's where she gets her comeuppance. I mean, this is the story where she's a character who needs to suffer the consequences of her immoral behavior, and instead they had her cut him loose, and they kind of set it up like she was going to come back, and it was part of her strategy. Her strategy, where she cuts him loose before he gets a chance to cut her loose, and then he's surprised, and then he thinks. Well, who, she can't dump me. I still really like her. Like, then it becomes... It, I mean, it makes sense, right? If you think of her as this um, very... She knows men's minds. Well, if I just take myself... If I get rid of him, then he'll want to win me back. Because then it's a matter of pride. And I think that's sort of exactly what happens and what you think right. as an audience member you're going you're gonna to see. Except for then she doesn't reel him back in. Right, so it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that, that well, she'd abandoned her plan. Other than they did insert... Um, a, a conversation between her and Alicia uh, about how she should just get James Martin for herself. Right. And, of course, that's eventually what she decides to do. Well, Alicia pushes that through most of the movie. Yes. She yeah. says that in a number She's of like, times. you know, that's still on the table. Right. That's always in the... But she met in the book... I believe that's mentioned a couple times, but in the movie it felt like it was kind of really, and probably so when it comes at the end, it's not seen as coming out of left field. It's something that the audience is kind of made aware of throughout as a possibility. Uh, But can I tell you the number one problem I had with it? Yeah. And it it happened pretty much the first time we meet Lady Susan was when it lost me. 
Um, in the epistolary novel, characters are writing, I'm sorry, the characters are writing letters to each other, which means they are giving information to other people. And it works. It's a letter. It works. On the stage, or in the movie, as soon as Lady Susan walks in and sits down, she immediately launches into exposition. Like she's reading the letter. Her Almost all of the characters, the first time we meet them, and it many times throughout, it's like they're just reading a letter to someone, providing exposition. And it felt so clumsy and so stiff. And they're all great actors, but there's only so much you can do if you sit down and say, let me catch you up on everything. I know. <laughs> and is, so it just, I, I just remember, I went by myself, actually. I went in the middle of the day because mm. I had the day off. And um, I just, like, put my head in my hand. And I was like, oh, gosh. oh. it just lost me right away because it just felt like people were just expositing through the whole thing. And, you know, I was, I was okay with it. And what first drew me in was the humor that sort of comes towards the beginning. But I think you're right that, and the first time I saw it during those early scenes, I was like, mm, okay. You know what I did like was when they uh, they started with Langford, and they were saying, yes. Manwaring is, is narrating, he says, Langford, Langford, how happy we could have been if not for Langford. And then all the people run out, and you get this little uh, spotlight on each of them, and it puts words underneath there's a, Yeah, saying, there's a title card. Yeah, a title card yeah, about who they are. But it's like a living portrait, because it mm-hmm. goes to Lucy Manwaring, and she's still like sobbing, and it says, Lucy Manwaring, you know, like a spurned wife or whatever. I thought that was a good idea, actually, because as we discovered when we were talking through the plot of the novel there's not that many characters but it is very complicated in terms of everyone's relationship to one another Mm -hmm. so kind of giving the audience a like putting the face of the actor describing who they are and then kind of like giving you a couple like one sentence description of them is helpful if you're not familiar with the story it was helpful and i thought it was well done and cute and um did you think that mr manwaring looked a lot like colin firth from pride and prejudice no it actually didn't oh as soon as he was on film for the first time on the screen. I was like, so they cast someone who looks like Mr. Darcy because he's supposed to be the most handsome, the most charming. And to me, it was like he purposely cast someone that looks like Colin Firth did in 1995. It's entirely possible. Okay, uh, gentle listeners, if you agree (laughs) or disagree, feel free to write in or post on our Facebook page and let me know your thoughts. Well, I know Colin Firth's face just so well that he—I could never mistake anyone else for. No, I don't. Well, know. I have it tattooed actually it, on the back of your eyes. Uh, no, on my boobs. So <laughs> I just have to look down. He's nodding. He knows. He's okay with it. I just have to look down, and I can remind myself <laughs> on the back of my eyelid. That would be a weird tattoo. Oh, that's what they say. That's a. That's a. That's a. It, I didn't make that up. But I wanted to ask you next about Chloe Sevigny. Mm-hmm. Sevigny? Sevigny? I thought it was Sevigny. Se- Chloe Sevigny. Although I will say Kate Beckinsale said that despite the fact they're very good friends and they've been in several movies together, she still doesn't know how to pronounce <laughs> Oh my God. But she is a respected actor and I, I certainly always thought of her as a good actress, but um, I had a problem with her performance. I, I found it, um, and I don't think it's just the lack of her a British accent, I found her delivery to be kind of wooden. She's always like that. Is she? Oh, she's always like that. Yeah. Really? Her, that's kind of her shtick, too, I think. She tends to do more very weird projects. She does a lot of the, uh, like, American Horror Story. She's been in a lot of those um, seasons. And she does a lot of indie. And she tends to do a lot of kind of stranger roles. So she always has had a wooden delivery. Stiff wooden delivery. Stiff wooden. Yeah. Even when she smiled, I felt it was very mask-like. That's her thing. Like it was acting 101 or something. Yeah, it's, that's how she is. I mean, that, I don't think that she's a bad actress. I think that's just how, how she interprets she is. I think that's yeah. how Chloe is. And, you know, I was looking for a female friendship where they were both kind of equals, but actually I found me, myself thinking of Lady Susan as a mentor to her and her just being sort of like... Like a sycophant hanger-on. Yeah. Um, like, if this was uh, the world of Gossip Girl, like we talked about, she'd be one of the uh, the girls that is always trying to suck up to Blair. Right? I've never seen Gossip Girl. Girl, what? I'll take your word for it, though. Well, she's basically like, there's the queen bee, and then there's her little minions. Like, um, in Buffy. Gosh, what is the character's name? What's wrong with me? Um, Cordelia. Cordelia, yes. Harmony and Cordelia. If you watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I think that that's not 
when I was reading the book, I got more the feeling that they were, I don't want to say equals because it was clear Lady Susan was, was kind of the queen bee, but Alicia was more of like, tell me everything. Yeah. She was, you know, like, I just want to live vicariously through you. You're so wicked. I really just tell me the details. I want to know everything. And she felt more engaged and more participatory and more excited. To yeah. See it was like, Ooh, you're so bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas you didn't get that here. I, I don't think she was right, and Kevin didn't didn't like her either. I, is it that she's worked with this director a lot? Is that why she yeah. was? She it, was in the last days. It's of like the Johnny show. Depp and Tim Burton. Like Johnny Depp's going to be another. I Tim think Burton so. Burton. I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think I think it's because she was in the last days of Disco, which is another uh, with Stillman. But that's okay. It's all right. It didn't it didn't ruin the movie for me. And I'm glad they kept her American and didn't try to... Yeah, and that's what Whitstelman was saying. That would have been totally like That would have been distracting to try <laughs> to make her do a British accent. And he just and he said he put in the jokes about, my dear, you'll be scalped. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you move back to Connecticut, you'll be Because nothing's scalped. better than a little racist humor. <laughs> to lighten the mood. And this, well, back then, they would have, right? Right, and there's a tarred and feathered... You'll be tarred and feathered. Yeah. Um, or they keep calling it, like, the... Uh, like savage Connecticut. Connecticut. <laughs> Connecticut, we all know, is like the Whitzelman most. Whitman said in his Q and A that um, he has been like lives in the UK a lot, and Brit- British people making fun of America is like a really common thing there. Yeah, and so yeah. he wanted to like insert. It's that. backwards. It's like <laughs> yeah. it's like if you live out in the boonies here, we would make fun of you for living that far. I was going to say Manassas, but if you're not from D.C., that doesn't have any <laughs> reference for you. Yeah, we've got to stop being so U.S.-centric, I know. I'm not even sure everybody knows We have what. listeners all over the world we now, do. you guys. We do, listeners. We are international. I say we have just as many Australian and Canadian fans as we do have U.S. fans. Oh, right. Yeah, woop, woop. You, you know, Americans, we would pretty much frame every conversation like everybody is an American. It's a bad habit. I'm trying to... I'm trying <laughs> <Pain> to... saluting. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> um, I'd rather be Canadian. Yeah. Um, right now, yeah, it's looking pretty good. I think everybody understands why. Um, but you know who was delightful and who pulled me in at the beginning and who made me think, okay, what still gets the humor is the uh, the mother and father of Catherine. Catherine being the sister of Reginald, mm-hmm. right? So Catherine writes to her mother and father, I'm afraid Reginald is falling in love with Lady Susan. And the uh, the mother is her eyes are too weak to read the letter, and so she gives it to her husband. And first of all, he starts just summarizing it. He's like, "Catherine's well, everything's good." And she's like, "No, no, no, read me the actual." Like, I'd actually like to read hear the letter, not just a <laughs> sum up of how everyone is. And then he starts reading the punctuation, and she's like, "You know, like this comma," and she's like, "No punctuation." <laughs> And then he reads the sentence about Reginald and Lady Susan. The relationship is growing and it's getting more close day by day. And they have long conversations and walks in the pleasure garden. And he immediately stops reading. And he's like, who is this Lady Susan? Who is this Lady Susan who's having conversations with Reginald that are? And he puts his reading glass up to his eye to look at the letter. And it says, long. (laughs) (laughs) That was the Last line of the movie for me. So I have to tell you that I was really excited um, when they showed who was playing the parents. And I'm sitting here frantically looking on IMDb trying to look up the actor's name. Uh, because I know that actor for a long time. Okay, his name is James Fleet. And he was in one of my favorite British comedies, which is called The Vicar of Dibley. Oh, really? Which, if you've not seen it, it is fantastic. It stars Don French, who is a very famous British comedian, where she plays a female vicar who is sent to this little town where everyone is just dumb as a rock. And she, <laughs> she's kind of like the only smart person. And she's just delightful, and it's so funny. It's a great show. Actually, Maggie has shown me a couple episodes, and it's I loved it. It's so funny. And James Fleet, who plays Sir Reginald de Courcy, um, is the son of kind of the the no the lord the noble of the area of Dibley the village, so when he came on screen, <laughs> I was so excited. I got really really happy because I just I, I really love him. I think he's fantastic. In the comedy, he he does is pretty good. There's this whole thing at the end that kind of went. He's on. also in Sense and Sensibility, actually. Oh, really, he plays the son that inherits. Oh, 
He wow. plays Eleanor and oh, Marianne's yeah. brother. Yes, okay. Wow. Who then inherits and then they leave. Yeah. He's much, well, obviously, that movie was made a long time ago. Man, I'm so old. Uh, no comment. No. I'm, older than I'm sorry. Yeah, his character on Vicar Dibley is called Hugo, which if you have not seen that, I think it's on Netflix now streaming. If you're in the U.S. and you have Netflix streaming, I highly encourage it. His character was really funny. Yes. And also, we have to talk about Tom Bennett, who plays... Sir James Martin. Yes. And with hysterically Stil- funny. What Stillman was saying, and it was well cast, of course, I don't know how well known this actor was. Maybe in British circles he was more well known. I, I should look him up too. I didn't recognize him. But what Stillman was saying in his QA that they were doing a table read. Um, you know, every all the cast was doing a table read and it was going terribly and it was very wooden. And then uh, Tom Bennett got his went got to his lines, got to his part. And it was like the sun came out, and everybody was laughing hysterically because he his delivery is just so good. He's cute as a button, too. He is cute as a button, and he has one of the best uh, comedy line deliveries, which is when he's talking about Churchill. And um, I was going to play the clip. I will insert it. Churchill. Churchill. That's how you say it, all together like that. I'd heard church and hill, but couldn't find either. All I could see was this big house. <laughs> I have not seen any of his other... I'm looking at his IMDb IMDb page as we scroll. I have not seen him in anything else that I know of, but he was a complete surprise. Because when you're reading the book, he is the most ridiculous character. Oh, my God. And far. you're just totally like, oh, God, this guy. But whenever we'd have come on screen here, I would get so happy. Like, oh, this is going to be really funny. Like, this, because despite the fact that he is a complete and utter moron and doesn't know what peas are, he's just so delightful <laughs> that... It wouldn't even be that bad. So when, again, when you find out Lady Susan is with him, yes, he's dumb as a bag of rocks, but he's just so nice and sweet. And I I found that the dynamic between him and, um, I want to say, Morvith Clark, the the girl who plays Frederica. Is she Welsh? I think she's Welsh because she had a weird name. I think it's pronounced... No offense to Welsh people. I just can't pronounce your language. I think it's pronounced Morvith, but I'll look that up later. Um... Yeah, she is um, a great Frederica Vernon, I thought. Mm-hmm. She thought she was very soft, but believable. She had a light touch. Because, as I was saying last time, I didn't get the attraction. I didn't know why Reginald ultimately found in lo- fell in love with yeah. her. But when they had that dynamic on screen, at first it's very much like big brother, little yeah. sister. But by the end, you really come over to her side. And you believe that they do love each other at their wedding. Yes. I think, yeah. It's that was well that done. They actually do. And she has, she does have a beautiful singing voice. They talk, a lot of the jokes come, people talking about her singing voice. And when she does finally open her mouth and sing, it, I think it lives up to the height. It's I'm, lovely. I'm so glad they put that in because the actual story ends very abruptly. Right. Um, we don't get a sense of whether they're happy, but to see their wedding and to see the uh, the true uh, romance there. And there was another li- nice moment they put in between Charles Vernon and Catherine Vernon, where Charles Vernon says something like, oh, no one could be as lucky as lo- in love mm-hmm. as I. And then they look at each other. Yeah, it is sweet. And it sort of takes takes a lot of the edge off. This was not super edgy. Um, it wasn't just all broad comedy, which I really yeah. appreciate. The Vernons and the DeCourcy's definitely come off as just nice, normal, <laughs> charitable. Like, they, they they basically adopt Frederica, but they genuinely really love her. You can tell. They just really come to love her. And Frederica, I think, is a really difficult character to play because you have to walk that line where she's been not abused. I think that's too hard. Just kind of beat down by her very dominating mother. So she's kind of, like, tiptoes around her and is on eggshells and doesn't want to bring the ire down but yet she isn't a total pushover you know she has her own thoughts and she's a full person and I thought this actress did a really nice job of making her sympathetic but still like she goes to Reginald like she's strong she doesn't want to marry him she kind of you know you compared her to Fanny Price and I Mm -hmm. think that's a really fair comparison you know that's what I thought okay Tom Bennett excellent Mr. Rushworth right um, so we're basically just going to take this cast and drop them in a Mansfield Park. I think Reginald, the guy who plays Reginald, who's a Xavier or somebody, it's right up in front, Xavier Samuel, would be a fantastic Edmund. Yeah, he didn't really do anything for me. So, you know, he was, he was very um, moral, but in a very soft, as Lady Susan says, a cough-like way, <laughs> which I had to listen to several times before I realized she was talking about a calf like a baby he, cow. He made, no offense, I mean, I don't know this guy, and I'm sure he's not going to listen to this podcast, but he made very little impression on me. <laughs> oh, I was totally into him. See, we're, see, I like the, sh- the, the shy, soft-spoken ones. I thought he, he played to me in that in Sweetie, that you're not shy or soft-spoken, so Bay's like, Woo! 
Uh, she, Kristen likes you, but you've met Kevin. I mean, can you really disagree <laughs> with why Ke- Kristen? Yeah, <laughs> he's like dreamy. He's like, Kevin's so dreamy. I love the, the, the shy butterflies. Mm-hmm. It's not that Reginald is shy, but he is just soft spoken. He's not like immoral. A, he's not like a man wearing. He's no. not a take charge. He doesn't say those charming things. Yeah. He's an Edmund. He doesn't have bon mots. You yeah. know, he, um, he, I think that's his. They, okay, but can we please talk about how. They basically go on the same walk every single day. <laughs> Did you notice that? Yeah. There is a scene kind of in the middle of the movie where it's supposed to show the passage of time and she and Reginald are just talking a lot and but they go through the same like stupid garden every day. She's wearing the same outfit too. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure about that as a costuming choice. Really? I guess she's supposed to be a little down on her luck, right? Yes. I, t- I paid a lot of attention to costumes, and so I was trying to see what Lady Susan's costumes were telling me about her character, and I couldn't... She starts off wearing all black, because she's presumably in mourning, and then her colors get gradually... She wears an all-red dress mm-hmm. at one point, which Ooh, was very surprising. Um, but they just... Seriously, it looked like they filmed this one scene... The director said, cut, all right, let's just reset up or we're going to film the scene like 10 pages later. Just walk through the same place we're all set up for. Just do that dialogue instead. Hey, it so- felt very, I noticed it. It was kind of jarring. Well, and you always get the impression that these lo- people's lives are so boring anyway. That's I mean, true. Going That's on true. Yeah, they just kind of just, amble yeah. through the same part of it. The- but you know what you said was so fascinating about her maybe not having that many outfits because... At one point in the movie, she has to pretend like she likes the children, right? But one mm-hmm. of them spills tea on her. Right. And she has to act like it's no big deal. But she then immediately the, goes upstairs. Yeah. And the following her. scene, she's like dabbing it with a napkin and then like going upstairs. Exactly. Well, she gets her friend slash servant <laughs> oh, <that was laughs> to clean weird, it out. That was a weird addition. That, that character's not in the book. No. And she just pieces out with no point. I think her only point was to talk to Lady Susan during a couple like of scenes. Like I said, we need exposition. You mm-hmm. need someone to um, for Lady Susan to impart this information to because we can't read letters that she's writing. So she needs to tell someone. Um, and then you can also see how she kind of treats people and will use people yes. selfishly. Like, oh, we would we could never discuss. Like, she does all this stuff for me, and she's horribly poor. But, oh, we could never discuss compensation because it would just take advantage of our friendship. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I was like, I will use her as slave labor. Yeah, the discussion of wages would be yeah. offensive to us both yes, or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, but that character, I have seen the movie twice now, and I couldn't get a read on who she was either because she seemed like a real suck-up. And I was expecting her to, like, roll her eyes behind Lady Susan's back mm-hmm. to tell Mm-mm. the audience, like, whoa, this lady is so narcissistic. But no, it doesn't happen. No. Again, I think she's just there so when Lady Susan goes up to her room and doesn't have to pretend to be nice to the Vernons, she can then just kind of, like, show who she truly is. What did you think about uh, Lucy Manwaring? She doesn't have a big part. But she's, like, super over the top. Oh, she just cries all the time. I mean... <sighs> I, that's, I think that was the comedy they were going for. Yeah. It's not really... The weepy, wronged wife isn't really a archetype that particularly interests me. So Yeah, I thought she was funny. I guess the funniest moment is when they do the spotlight and introduce her, and she's, like, crying and sobbing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was fine. Um, I will say, I think that he... I think that um, the director made the decision to include her in more scenes because she is basically the one who spills the beans to Reginald on what is really happening. And in the book, it kind of comes out of left field. She's been referenced, but we've never met her. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't necessarily... We don't, quote, meet her because it's all through letters, but it's like, guess who was there? It was Lucy Manwaring. She showed up and she like did, did, did everything. So if the audience, if you know who that person is, it makes more sense. Like you understand, oh, we need to talk about how utterly, I'm going to swear, how utterly fucking wasted Stephen Fry was in this movie. <laughs> Drunk, wasted? No. Oh, okay, like wasted, like, wasted. I like completely potential. agree with you. Yes. If you put Stephen Fry in your movie and was, give him three lines, it was a real bummer. There has got to be half an hour. Yeah, Bay is shocked. There's got to be a half hour of Stephen Fry outtakes and shit on that <laughs> floor. Because why? Yeah, Stephen Fry. Who, if you're not, if okay, if you're, you guys are all Austin fans, so I'm sure you're plugged into British cinema, so you know that Stephen Fry is huge. Hugely famous.
this. Yeah. He hosts the BAFTAs every year. They love him. He does, for God's sake, he narrates the British version of the Harry Potter books. Like, yeah. he's huge. Yeah, he's hugely famous. And he's in two scenes. I couldn't agree more. In I, two scenes. I, I completely agree. I was really bummed because I kept waiting for him to be. I was like, oh, they must have written some extra scenes for, you know, Dr. Johnson or yeah. whatever. Nope. 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 It was a bummer. Also, sorry, I'm going to keep going around because no. this is another thing that just really bothered the hell out of me. In the book, I don't, we never actually meet him because he's not a letter writer. Right, right. Uh, we only hear about him from Alicia, and he's just supposed to be like, from her perspective, Lady Susan's perspective, he's a total drag. He just has gout and bitches, <laughs> doesn't let her do what she wants, refuses to let Lady Susan in the house. So, but when you see him, it's Stephen Fry. Mm-hmm. He's completely charismatic and wonderful. So you're just like, you automatically hate Alicia. Yes. You're like, what is wrong with you? You're married to Stephen Fry. I completely (laughs) agree with you. Yeah. You never get that element. Like you just assume, I completely agree with your point. I can only, the only thing I can think of is that he must've had a larger part or maybe he's like BFF with Whit Stillman. I don't know, but he must've had a larger part. And then it just all ended up being edited out uh, because it just made no sense to me. At the end of the, they could have cast any rando British actor <laughs> in that role for the amount of impact it yeah. had. And yeah. the fact that they did cast such an amazing, well-known actor just made me mad. Like, mm. You don't put Stephen Fry in your movie and give him nothing to do. <laughs> well, Whit Stillman, you just got told. Burn. Burn. Hashtag truth-telling. <laughs> Hashtag Stephen Fry is the best. Oh, oh, you know, another thing that... If Hugh Laurie had popped up in this one, too. And oh, my God. Lines, oh, my God. I would have been really upset. Like, just need talking to about a new Fry. I mean, this story needs a new character played by Hugh Laurie, who's in every single scene. Who just, like, sits in Go. the back with Stephen Fry, because apparently they can't do anything that's not together, right? They're always there. If you're not familiar, they have a series of specials and programs and things that they've done together and are delightful. We should talk about, if, if you don't mind, too... This bothered me in the story also, but about 80% way through the movie, after Lady Susan and Reginald have a split, Lady Susan brings Frederica to London. Yes. And you don't really know why. In the movie Oh, said, that made no... Okay. It was so frustrating. Ugh. It was so frustrating. She brings Frederica to London, and she says to Alicia, I'm going to make Frederica marry James Martin. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, Catherine and Charles are there saying, Frederica needs to come back to Churchill with us. And there's this long scene where Lady Susan's like, no, no, of course she not. She dissembles. And they're basic. I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to make it where she has to pretend to be the loving mother. And they need to come up with a convincing enough reason for her to, quote, like, save face to let Frederica go. It's very much, you know, Bay and I were just listening to Les Miserables in the car um, not too long ago. It's very much like the the waltz where Valjean's trying to buy Cosette. Oh, yeah. And both of the people know that it's a pretense and that they just are trying to get more money and they have to come up. And blah, blah, blah. It went on way too long. Yeah. It went on so long, in fact, that you're actually questioning, is Lady Susan actually trying to manipulate them? Or does she? why would she want why Frederica she to stay, yeah. though? Right. It went on so long, it became confusing. Yeah, and then after Frederica goes, Lady Susan's talking to Alicia, and she's like, I actually do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and you know what I'm saying? They soften her character. Yeah, and and it doesn't. It's not clear that she made the decision to cut Frederica loose because she has decided to get Sir James. But then you do see her with Manwaring, and that was a weird scene too. (sighs) Manwaring. Well, that was such a weird scene. It was Lady Susan and Alicia, and in a a carriage, and Manwaring comes up, and you're like, Well, Alicia's there. What's gonna happen? What's going on? What's going on? Yeah. And then the next thing you know, the movie is ending and she's married to Sir James. I did really like at the end, though, where basically Lady Susan is married to Sir James. Manwaring is living with them, is the father of her child. <laughs> um, they are in a poly relationship, and but Sir James doesn't <laughs> know. know. He has no idea that he's actually in a threesome. Yeah. With them because he's so dumb. I thought that was actually pretty funny. Yeah. To have her, like, she's getting everything at this. She gets her cake and gets to eat it too. Do you think that um, her pregnancy precipitated her marrying James Martin? That was, I believe, yes. I mean, that was almost explicitly stated because Sir James shows up to Alicia's and he says, you know, oh, and she's pregnant. Oh, and she goes, oh, well, that's very quick. And he goes, yes, it was the, like, the very (laughs) night of our wedding. Like, clearly she was pregnant. 
yeah. before. She, and he said, she told me the next but, day okay. that she was pregnant. And it's just like, <laughs> oh my God, why are you so dumb? Uh, but he, again, the actor is so funny that instead he's clearly dumb, but you're like, oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, why are you so dumb? Uh, but I just feel like uh, I don't want to shit all over the movie because like I said, it just wasn't for me, but you did really like it. So let's talk about things that we did like about it, Kristen. Yeah, I just, the, t- the way the tone was and the, the line delivery, while too fast, as long as I understood what they were saying, I felt that it was a good representation of the tone of the mm-hmm. original book. And I was drawn, one thing I have to say, I was riveted. I was drawn into the story and I I thought the pacing was very good until we hit that brick wall of yeah. whatever. And I know that Kevin was, too. I felt that he was in tune to the story. He's, you could see him just, like, looking at the screen the whole time and into it, right? <laughs> yeah. No, you can tell when you're someone you're seeing a movie with is, is, not, is, is not into They're it. not, like, checking their phone or kind of like, Yeah, because no. he had all the appropriate reactions. And even though he is open to Austin, I feel like, oh, <laughs> well, some accusation going on. <laughs> Pantomimed accusations going on I feel on like Bay just accused me. Okay. <laughs> but I'm talking about when, he, when we're at home, he's always making fun of me because I will not do one thing while we watch a movie. I will do other things. But in the theater is what we're talking about. Whatever. <laughs> Kristen, you were saying. Um, I was saying... Yeah, what was I going to I say? don't remember what you were talking about. You were saying you could tell that Kevin was drawn into the plot. Kevin was drawn into it. As I said, he laughed a ton. Um, it was very Kevin's sense of humor. It was. It was. And that's what's, what's so great is they mined that out of, mm-hmm. out of Austin. And um, my brother-in-law also sent me a tweet from some film critic who said that love and friendship is Austin stripped of the romance and it's amazing. And I wrote back to him and I was, I said all this stuff, right? Grump, 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 you know, yeah. like, there's no, you know, it's not really just romance anyway. And yeah. he's like, no, that's what she meant. Like it was mm-hmm. stripped of the unnecessary romance. And I completely agree because even though there were, were, were heartfelt sentiments and nice moments in it, it was a story about, uh, rich people and their annoying and bizarre idiosyncrasies <laughs> with ridiculous people. I mean, it kind of you know what our neighbors exist for us to you know. I can't remember the quote. You know the quote: making yes. sport of our neighbors. Yes. What do what do we live for but to make sport of our neighbors and laugh at them in our turn? Exactly. And yeah, for our neighbors, sport yeah. for our neighbors and laugh at them. Right. And that's kind of exactly what it was. I just and it's just it's such a shame that. Um, Austin didn't get a chance to write a more, you know, I made the comparison to Maleficent, how she's the much more interesting character of Sleeping Beauty. And it's, it's a shame that she didn't get a chance to write more characters like Lady Susan, because she was just so delicious. Just, just want to like take a big bite out of that character because she's so complex and kind of wrong and you feel like you are Alicia yeah when you're reading it you're like oh tell me more what did you do next you're so wicked and this lady Susan just didn't have that same kind of I think Kate Beckinsale's a great actress but it just didn't have that same kind of you're whispering in the hall tell me all the bad things you and yeah, and she doesn't, have, she doesn't have that bitchy quality behind the scenes. Yeah. So she just has like, oh, you know, kind of. Uh, she's a little more snobbish. Snobbish than is. Delightfully bitchy. Um, there was also one thing I liked. There were some weird things that they tossed in. One thing I kind of liked was Frederica praying in the church and the young curate mm. comes to her. That was weird. <laughs> they, they had a vicar character. Yeah, young curate. Who looked like a hobbit. <laughs> He looked like a ginger hobbit. It was not Ed Sheeran. At first, for like two seconds, <laughs> I got really excited. And I was like, is that Ed Sheeran? No. It was not Ed Sheeran. He was very short. I, I mean, I'm not really sure what that was supposed... Maybe about morality. And, mora- and Frederica's struggle. It made me like Frederica and know Frederica more as a character because she was genuinely wanting to do good. Right. There was a run on, run on joke about the Ten, ten Amendments as well. Yes. The ten, yeah. Well, now I'm thinking of like, oh my God, there's that scene um, in the Mel Brooks movie where Moses comes down with 15 commandments, but he drops one of the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> these, fifth, these 10 commandments. <laughs> uh, no, but there is a run on joke about uh, Sir James and nobody really knowing the order of the actual Ten Commandments. And then that stuff was cute. And with someone wrote that in and I don't know if I mentioned this but Whitselman also did a novelization of the movie that's right you mentioned that do you think have you read it um I am in the middle of it I I need to finish it but it is very funny and so it is written from the point of view 
of a nephew of of Sir James Martin. So they've gotten old, and the nephew is sort of chronicling what happened back in the day. Oh, let me tell you the story of my aunt and uncle, and they're because she doesn't have married Sir James. So Lady Susan would have been his aunt. Right. And uh, the point of it, he's trying to vindicate Lady Susan and say she was really just misunderstood. Sort of like Charles Vernon is trying to look for the best. And he's also kind of dumb in the James Martin mold. So he's talking about um, how Sir James was misunderstood and how, of course, he knew about peas. It just slipped his mind. Yeah. And why are we making him out to be this villain and taking snips from the... And he keeps referring to um, Jane Austen as the spinster authoress. <gasps> well, so it's almost like a response to... Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the jokes that Whitstillman put in the movie are in the novelization as well, so he sort of pulls so the, stuff. So the novelization of the movie exists in a universe where Jane Austen wrote Lady Susan, and this is written as a response to her vilifying his family members. Yeah. That is very interesting. It's really cute, and it's really he wrote. Well he just wrote Jane Austen fan fiction, you know, basically. Oh, you know, the first page of it, I was like, I don't know if I can do this because it reads like Austin fanfic because no one can write like her. Yeah. But once I got into the conceit of it, I was like, this is charming and I, 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 yeah. I'm keeping on reading it. And I do just want to give out, we're talking about things we like, I want to give a shout out to the soundtrack because I really just enjoyed the soundtrack. It's not something really random, but I would go download it right now and just listen to it when I was at work or doing something. It was just a really beautiful fun, light, if you like that era music. I just thought it was really fun. It fit perfectly. You're so good as a film critic too because you are looking at costumes and you are listening to the soundtrack and I feel, I find like all that stuff escapes me until my like third or fourth, fifth viewing. Well you have a lot more patience for film than I do, Kristen. I try to, I have to kind of take all of that in because if I'm so-so on a movie I just won't bother watching it again. Oh. (laughs) I feel like you and I will probably watch this movie again together at some point. Yeah. But I will probably not seek it out Mm. on my own to watch it Mm. again. But the critics have been very positive towards yes. it. It's, uh, mine is a minority opinion for sure. Yes, uh, most people really, really like They're it. They're willing put to put up with the quirks because it, it's it, especially at the end, because it has a, such a strong first seventy five percent, and because it's supposed to be artsy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're supposed to be able to have a longer attention span and put up with things like that. Um, but you said something very fascinating, and if you don't mind, I will just jump. Well, back. which thing? I mean. Well, it's, it's all gold. So many facts. It's all gold. <laughs> oh man! One of the things I want to do uh, with you, and you were saying, you know, we posted on the Facebook page, and we said, tell tell us what you think we should do because we are going to run out of novels at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one of the things you said was that Austin didn't get a, the chance to write more really evil characters who are just injecting chaos into the world. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about Mrs. Norris as an evil character because I think this was an evolution of Austin's talent, skill, perspicacity as an observer of the world in that when she writes her major novels, there is no really, other than like Wickham and a few, there's no really obvious bad actors. It's Mm -hmm. just the banality of evil, the evil that exists in the love of order. In, right. in Mrs. Norris trying to say, no, this should be this way. This should oh, be this way. So smart, Kristen. And pushing everybody down into, oh, thank you. Yeah, no, this is all, this is great. That's what brings Austen to a total other level is that she's not just writing a book with the big bad. Yeah. She's not just writing Harry versus Voldemort. I yeah. mean, that's, yeah, that's well done for other reasons, but we all know the story by now. Like, Ooh, there's somebody evil. Yeah. Um, and what she's writing is, no, in your real life, evil is creeping in in so many ways. And they're not ways. murderers or sociopaths yeah. or something. It's just, they are, they're they're just your neighbors. They're people. Like sometimes we just act selfishly, and we have to. We have to do a podcast about Austin's life too. Maybe we'll read an auto, uh, not an autobiography. Maybe we'll read. A, <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll read a biography from beyond the grave. Because <laughs> and, I, and and as I, I am telling this to you for the benefit of our audience, because I know you know this, because we went on the Austin tour together. Mm-hmm. One of her neighbors actually was a sadist who like broke his servant's leg for mm-hmm. fun or whatever. She could have written that. That was part of her real yeah. world. Mm-hmm. And her elder, her cousin Eliza. Her husband, Eliza's husband, was guillotined in like the French Revolution. Yeah. I mean, that kind of dramatic stuff. There was, happened. I mean, she did have exposure. It's not like she just grew up in this little idyllic um, small village in England. Like, she knew of horror and yeah. um, of bad people and bad things in the world, but, but she chose not to show those 
not to tell those stories. Let other pens dwell on and guilt, and, guilt misery. and misery. Would be great. Yeah, would be great. But I think that's a really excellent point. So we should definitely do... Do, do you want to do a po- future podcast on the life? The life and times of Jane Austen. Oh man, we could do so many podcasts. And we could also do, like you were saying about Mrs. Norris, we could do a podcast on Austen Villain. Yeah, there's gotta a write lot of this ways. down. Bay, bay, write all this stuff down. This is re- this is really good. This is gold. We got. I, I will forget yes. immediately if we don't keep track of our future ideas. There's a lot of ways we can slice and dice this, and we can also talk about some facts about Regency life. Now that oh, yeah. is not. It's not. I'm bad about not knowing as much of Regency stuff as we as I should. However, we have great listeners who have contacted us mm-hmm. about some facts of interest. And um, there are also great blogs out there who, that are always doing posts about, well, did you know about, you know, where did they go to the bathroom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And some of that actually does give a, um, a deeper read to the actual books. I think it's amazing that so f- so few of Austin's books have really, really time-specific. Like, they don't talk about hair powder or, like, his right. wig was yeah. skew or nothing like that. But there was all that stuff going on. Snuff, taking snuff, right. you know. Well, I think, Kristen, we're going to talk about one of the emails that someone yes. has sent us. But first, I w- do you know... So in they do really cool television over in the UK, obviously. And they have done series of reality programs where they have taken modern day people and had them live as if they were members of other periods. Um, and my mom and I, we love these shows. There's one called the 1940s house where they take a family and they have them live as if they were in 1940s, world war two era London. And they have to dress like that, clean the house like that, cook like that. They even set up in a local grocery store down the street. They only give them products that were available at that time. And I believe they also did it with the Georgian period and they have the Georgian house. And I can't, I don't know, and I'm wondering if you know, have they ever done a Regency They have done a Regency We need to watch that. (laughs) They have done a Regency house. In fact, they use some of the, some of them are wearing costumes. Oh my God. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Okay, we need to watch that next time we're together. If I come visit you in Boise, or we could just watch it separately and then talk about it on a podcast as well. Yeah, we could do that. I didn't finish it. You know, I remember watching a couple of episodes and getting a little frustrated with it we can talk about the reasons for that too and that you know that was really interesting but stuff like the hermitage you know Mm -hmm. like and many of us have seen austin land right with um with felicity i have to say i do love that movie it was a good movie and she talks to um Brit from Flight of the Concords. He's Who Bay and I just saw at Wolf oh, Trap. Yeah, they got to Last go see week. Flight of the Concords at Wolf Trap. And I was thinking the whole time about Austin Land, you guys. <laughs> I'm not lying. I didn't mention to Bay that one of them had been in a kind of Austin-related movie. Um, but the whole time I was like, oh my god, it's an Austin Land. <laughs> <laughs> he was the Wickham. We should have special guest, J.J. Field. Yeah, over oh, one night only. I would have thrown my panties all the way from the lawn up to the front. Yeah, like I would have made like a catapult or a trebuchet or something. And like a trebuchet. Launch them at J.J. Field. Hit them oh. right in the face. Oh, this has to happen. She, she was talking to Brett, who was playing the hermit, right? So they always right. had the hermitage on these huge properties, which was just a guy living as an yeah. aesthetic hermit. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that is in, not only is it in that movie, Austin Land, but it is also in Regency House, where one of the poorer young ladies strikes up a relationship with the mm, hermit. Okay. And so stuff like that, weird stuff goes on. Okay, we're going to have to track that show down and watch it yeah, for sure. And we will. And, and also listen to the Flight of the Concords, if you're not familiar. Yes, Flight of the Concords. They are a um, novelty band. The yes, two men. Two guys from New Zealand. <laughs> who are hilarious. Um, so let's talk about um, reader mail. Mailbag. We need to come up with a sound effect for mailbag. Oh God, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not spending my time editing in a. You've got mail. <laughs> well, first of all, I think AOL would sue you. Well, okay, um, we got to come up with something. Fun fact: there. Jane Austen used to have to walk like a bazillion miles to get her mail from the local tavern, and if I'm not mistaken, it was <clears> called <throat> the Wheat Sheaf. Oh, you know, okay. yeah. didn't we like, drive by that yes. when we run our tour? And it, I'm also going to have to share some pictures from when Krista and I went to England together for our Jane Austen theme tour. I'll man. have to share them on our Facebook we page. When Bob. was that? And I was when you mentioned Georgian, the Georgian era too. There, if you go to the Georgian city, the Bath, Bath. they 
have a Georgian museum, and I learned that they used to cut off mouses' tails and use them as false eyebrows. That is fucked up. And so they is horrified. I'm so glad that Austin lived in the Regency times where they didn't do that, so we don't have to read yeah. about eyebrows and, like, mouse tails. <laughs> they just drew them in with charcoal like every normal every person. Normal person. Um, okay, so we'll have to come up with something cool for a mailbag that's related. Or we just call it the, the Wheat Chief. <laughs> Time for the wheat. Let's see what's in the wheat sheaf today, Kristen. <laughs> well, thank you to our listeners. We have two um, two different people contacted us just very recently. And the first person, um, we decided to keep up the misses and then initial sort of construction. Um, Mrs. B sent us a very interesting bit of information about Michaelmas. Or as I like to call it, Michael Mass. It's written... <laughs> It's written like Michael Mass, and it is one of the Regency-specific things that keeps popping up. But you should... What is the line, Kristen? What is it famously used? Uh, his name is Bingley, and he will be in possession by Michaelmas. <laughs> <laughs> so Mrs. B wrote us, and she said, you know, I was thinking the other day that this is mentioned a lot in Austin novels, and I was thinking to myself, I don't actually know what that is. So she very kindly did some research and was sweet enough to pass it along to me and Kristen. So do you want me to bring it up and we can explain to everyone what it actually is? Yes, and I actually have it here. It turns out that Michaelmas, September 29th, marked the end slash beginning of the fiscal year for farmers and landowners in England. The reasoning has something to do with the fiscal quarters of the year, aligning with the seasonal quarters of the year, and because of farming. And our fiscal year in the United States also is similar, begins on October 1st. So it totally makes sense. And, you know, the point she was making is, Jane Austen is referencing Michaelmas, well, it's just one more element of the finance of things intruding into... Mm -hmm. The romantic lives. Of so these Bingley people. basically was going to let buy Michaelmas for tax reasons. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Because possibly it's, it's all about when be- your new fiscal accounting year right. starts. The beginning of accounts for the new year, exactly. So, but let's also talk in um, in Mrs. B's uh, email. She ends with, "So if you don't know, now you know." <laughs> and said that she listens to a lot of Hamilton, and so I just have to give Hamilton a shout out. Um, I, despite being a big theater fan and having done a lot of theater, I had not listened to it. I was kind of resisting. I was hoping to be able to see it before I listened to it. But Bay has been sharing it with me. I downloaded it and finally broke down and listened to it. And it's fantastic, of course. I know I'm going to love it. And as a big history history nerd, I really like it. I actually enjoy Act 2 more because I think that's when it really digs into the cool political give and take. But uh, let's just add to the Hamilton hysteria and I'll give it two (laughs) thumbs up. Check it out. It's really, really good. Lots of epic rap battles, like we talked about last time as well. <laughs> Excellent. That's another podcast. It's just us drafting epic rap battles. Not doing them because it would be But bad. that's how funny it would be is like two Regency ladies with no flow um, <laughs> trying to yeah. do epic rap battles. Hey, remember when we had that whole like Mansfield Park discussion about like how Jane Austen was comparing white rich women to slavery? <laughs> And how it was like awkward and terrible. <laughs> More awkwardness and terribleness coming right up for you. <laughs> I mean, that's the a listener's given. benefit. Uh, but we have another email. Yes, another email. And the point that was brought up, and Maggie and I was just talking about, we were just talking about how we have to revisit Pride and Prejudice because yes. we only really scratched the surface. And I talked so much about Darcy having social anxiety and thinking Elizabeth was poor. But this listener brought up that I wasn't also including the idea of class in general and Mm -hmm. all of his wealthy connections and how much all of those things meant. So it wasn't just that he was rich. Yeah. When he comes to her and he says, like, the inferiority of her connections um, is what's keeping him from proposing, that's actually a much bigger bigger deal. And so we we didn't really address that as much. And I would like to go back and talk about that. We definitely need to. I mean, we've given Pride and and Prejudice the springboard for the podcast was the series and um, Kristen kind of relating it to her own life but we we will eventually do a read of Pride and Prejudice and discuss it like we have I think the other novels for sure I've read so much Austin that I I assume that people understand things like entails and primogeniture and Mm -hmm. in class because I'm so steeped in it yeah but if you were watching Pride and Prejudice for the first time, you know, the adaptation we were talking You'd about. Like, I don't understand why yeah, they, why can't they inherit? That seems really dumb. And then yeah. some women do inherit. Right. Because remember when Mr. Darcy dies, 
Oh uh, God, what is his sister's name? Help me, my brain Georgiana. shut off. Yeah, Georgiana actually gets a ton of money, and the um, the woman that Wickham is engaged to briefly, the pale freckled thing. Yeah, uh, she is is an heiress. So it's kind of like I don't understand why the Bennets can't. And they inherit money, but there are some women who can also inherit property as mm-hmm. well, and that's what Lady Catherine de Bourgh was talking about. Right. Like your father's estate is entailed on Mister Collins. Mm-hmm. It was not thought necessary in Sir Louis de Bourgh's family, which is from. Right. Right. Yeah, saying, she does Anne. mention, like, by the way, you know, I own all those. Yeah. Like, Rosings is hers. And her daughter Anne will also inherit Rosings. Right. Um, and just to, I thought that the the email we got was really interesting because we didn't talk about it. And in the emailing that occurred between Kristen and I, because like I mentioned, we can talk about Austin a lot. Um, it was an excellent point because Darcy possesses both wealth and class, which are different. And Lady Catherine's objections to Lizzie are mostly class-based. It's who, you know, who is your, your uncle in London and now your sister's married to this guy and, you know, who is your father? Yeah. And Lizzie's got her, you know, he's a gentleman, I'm a gentleman's daughter, but mm-mm, that's, that's not the same. I guess I was just going to say thanks for the email again and we will definitely address those things. And as you can, as you can see, listeners, if you have any queries, things to add, thoughts to add. Um, I know as an Austin fan, I am always adding thoughts. Um, so my friend works for Slate.com, which is an online magazine. Oh, wow. Cool. And every time Slate publishes something about Austin, which they actually do kind of frequently, I write to him, not every time, but in the past, I've written to him and said, Jeremy, I wish to register an opinion. <laughs> Because, well, you have to do it that way. You can't read and use the comments on any internet website now because they're all just cesspools. So awful. And so, because I know him personally, I tell him all this, and he's their politics editor. Like, he doesn't doesn't care. care. Kristen, (laughs) why? So, do we have any other old business to get to, Kristen? I think that's it. I'm just so sad you're going to fly away again. Oh, I know. Oh, and and, um, there's so much to talk about on the Facebook page, too. Maggie and I found a list, ranked list, of Austin adaptations. I mean, all of these things can be future episodes. We're basically going to be doing this podcast for the rest rest of our our lives. lives. So I hope that everyone is okay with that. As you posted, um, Sean Bean going, one does not simply finish analyzing chaos. (laughs) I will take any opportunity for a Sean Bean meme. Yes. So anyway, someone made a list of Austin adaptations, and they put Sense and Sensibility... Um, the Angley uh, Emma Thompson Sense and Sensibility fourth which is not correct and I said someone I, w- I ran to Maggie and I said someone is wrong on the internet yeah <laughs> <laughs> we have to correct the record so maybe we'll take there, there's, they put Northanger Abbey as number one I was really surprised and I, I do I think they did that because they wanted more eyeballs on it and they wanted more people to watch it however let's be honest let's be real I mean the difficulty of the adaptation and I mean Kristen and I are both in agreement we love Pride and Prejudice the whole first three hours of this podcast were about how much we love the A&E BBC Pride and Prejudice but I think Chris and I both agree that Ang Lee's Sense of Sensibility needs to be number one Masterful. on any, any ranking of Austin adaptations. It's probably one of the best adaptations of any work of literature in terms of its, um, it's amazing. The Oscar winning. I also sometimes... Adaptation. Yeah, Exactly. And sometimes when I'm doing something that doesn't require a lot of brain power, like I'm washing my hair or something, I think about mean things that I'm going to say about Patricia Rosima's Mansfield Park. Because we are <laughs> definitely doing an episode. Is that the Billy Piper one? No, it is the uh, Francis McDormand, Johnny oh, Lee Miller. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm going to say so many mean oh, things. Oh, when we do a um, our, our film commentary for we, it? We could do a commentary. We could just do a review like we're doing here. We did kind of talk about it in the, uh, in the Mansfield Park. Yeah. Podcast. Okay, I can talk. She's got hour. more. You know, with Mansfield Park guys, just have for an hour about how bad that adaptation is. Okay, that's cool. We'll do it. Okay, um, but yeah, Kristen and I have a lot of thoughts about that ranking and how we have a lot of thoughts in general. They just got it wrong. I'm sorry. Like you just <laughs> sense and sensibility is definitely not my favorite Austin novel, but that movie is beautiful in every sense of the word, and. Northanger Abbey, I love. I made Bay watch it, and he liked it too. And it's del- it's delightful. I say that word a lot, but it really is. But it's like a made-for-TV movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, come 
on. It doesn't have quite the subtlety or nuance. Am I being am I being classist now? Because they don't have like the budget and star power. I don't oh. think that's fair. And also the themes of sense and sensibility, I think, are much more powerful. Yes, it's just a more powerful, more complex novel, and to adapt. Yeah, something. I mean, don't get me wrong. Catherine Morland's a cool kid, but nobody really gives a shit about her two years coming of age story. Oh. And <laughs> and to adapt something that complex and that layered into a Hollywood length film, not mm-hmm. a miniseries, a yeah. Hollywood length film is incredible triumph. Yeah. I, I think so. Uh, okay. So I think that that pretty much wraps up yeah, this love and friendship themed podcast. Yeah. Well, another one, another great podcast. That the is books. the theme of our podcast. Oh, wait, I didn't even say, okay, Coda, let me answer the question. Why is the freaking movie called Love and Friendship when oh, the book is called Lady hmm. Susan? Trivia. Love and Friendship is the name of a totally different story Austin wrote in her Juvenalia. There's a very simple reason, and Whit Stillman said this, and I didn't know it, and I felt like a bad Austin fan for not knowing it. Lady Susan was not Jane Austen's title for that novella. She oh. left it untitled. Oh. And it was her, I think, brother later who gave the novella the title Lady Susan. And so because Whit Stillman was not, you know, bound by the author's intent, he took that other title because he thought it was better and probably thought that the da and da, noun and noun would bring in a few extra awesome right. fans. So do you think that also he picked it to be somewhat ironic because there isn't actually a lot of genuine love and a lot of genuine friendship oh. in it? There's a lot of Lady Susan feigns love and tends to feign friendship without having a lot of either. I think that's a good point. It's, it's yeah. I told you guys, it's all gold. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So on that note, that's great. So wait, Kristen, before we sign off, what is going to be our next novel? I need to know what to read. Uh, I think we talked about doing Sense and Sensibilities. Oh, great. <laughs> now you knock it off. Okay. Uh, you need to be careful, all right? You did, You can't come on this podcast about Jane Austen and start being a hater yourself. I'm not a hater. <laughs> you can't have opinions. Any, oh, wow. Okay. Any, look, let's put it this way. Any Jane Austen novel, even not my favorite, is going to be... Yes. Way one, better. One of the top, you know, than top novels. Um, it's just, it's, it, it's a bit dry. You know what? But I look forward to revisiting it now that I have a much more... I have a deeper understanding and appreciation for the context. But I will just say I have some controversials about persuasion. Yes. Controversial opinions about persuasion, so I'll, I'll go easy on you because I hope you'll go easy on yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, Mansfield Park's your favorite, so I don't <laughs> see how you can throw... Whoa! Oh. <laughs> She's just flipped the table over. Uh, okay, so thanks for listening, everyone, Yay. and we will see you very soon. Break out your sense and sensibility... Because we'll be talking about that next time. See you soon. Bye.